welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Okay, welcome to Chit Chat Money. Uh, today, we have a bit of a unique show, so no deep dive today. This is going to be a roundtable discussion. Some people are OG listeners. Uh, the longtime listeners actually like when we kind of ramble on about nonsense. So we've basically done that today. We brought Ian and Brad along. We're all going to have kind of a story, something to riff on, something to talk about, um, and then we'll kind of pose questions to one another. But before we get to that, we want to talk about our friends, our sponsor, uh, Quarter. If you don't know, Quarter is an investor relations app, uh, pretty much comprehensive investor relations app that allows you to listen to conference calls, uh, look at presentations, read transcripts. You can listen to them at two times speed if you're really smart. Um, or I know, Brett, you're 1.5 times. I'm 1.2. Yeah. slow. A little yeah. slow. But, uh, I, I mean, you got you to, gotta, you know, quality over quantity. They have, uh, it's 100% free. It's on the iOS, it's on Android. They have tons of companies. I don't think I've ever looked up a company that hasn't been on there. So, and they're working to improve it every, I don't know, all the time. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, check them out. It's, you can follow them on Twitter at quarter underscore app. It's Q U A R T R underscore app. Without further ado, let's talk stories for the week slash quarter, literally. Like a quarter, not yeah. We may, yeah, we're not doing these every week anymore, but we may be doing maybe once a quarter. We we think it, we're going to call it the quarterly roundtable. Uh, but my story is going to be on forecasting fraud uh, and how to mitigate any chances of fraud within your investments. So I have to ask to start out, Ryan. Have you heard of Aussie Media at all? The story. Well, I've seen a few references on Twitter. All right, Brad, Ian, have you guys heard of this? Just as of no, this I haven't week. heard of it. <laughs> All right. Okay. We should, uh, we should make sure. All right. How about we have to choose somebody to go first when we ask these questions. So Brad, Ian, Brad goes first and then Ian, if we pose the general question, all right, Ian's (laughs) going to have to be patient. Uh, all right, but I'm going to get into Aussie media. So Aussie media was slash still is a digital media startup founded in 2013 to shake up the broadcast journalism industry. It claimed it had millions of viewers and used it to raise $70 million in five funding rounds. However, views and readers were way lower than expected or that they shared. It was just like, I think it was like 300,000, 100,000 or something like that. And they kept that hidden for many years. And apparently when attempting to raise more money, the co-founder impersonated a YouTube executive on a call with Goldman Sachs saying the company was getting a lot of views. And I think they got caught with that. So it was one of their founders and they were like trying to imitate someone else's voice on just a phone call. Pretty funny. Um, but now the board of directors was trying to raise a law firm to investigate the situation, uh, but they all decided to resign instead. And then the only remaining member of the board, founder Carlos Watson, canceled the legal investigation and said, as of this week, the company's just going to keep on going. I think it's just him now. Um, but clearly investors were totally defrauded. And I think this situation, you know, hyped up investor presentations, you know, saying views are a lot higher than they are. It kind of reminds us of other things like WeWork, uh, Theranos, Nikola, stuff like that. And that $70 million that was raised or invested is probably going to zero. So 
the question I want to ask is in the, you know, quote, golden age of fraud here, what are some ways that you look to identify potential fraud in investment investment to try to mitigate that risk? Because we always know that there is that risk, especially with early stage companies. Um, I maybe can give a few that I look for. Like one that I try to do is can I interact with the product? So if you can actually interact with it, say an easy example would be um, Netflix or Spotify. That one's really easy. It's definitely not fake because you can see everyone else using it. You use it yourself. It's, you know, there's always a chance they're inflating numbers or something like that. And then I always like to ask, is it providing me or the potential customer any value? That one's pretty simple. You're probably asking that with any investments. Another question I like to ask, does it have a history of operations and profitability? The longer is the better. And I guess if it's shorter, you know, it's probably a riskier investment or more of a chance that they're fudging the numbers. Uh, does the founder or leader make kind of religious type references, not direct references, but kind of, you know, you know what I mean? Like the Adam Newman, this Aussie media founder said that this moment was his Lazarus moment or something like that. Uh, I'm not, uh, I don't know much about the, the Bible at all, but I think that was something about how someone was coming back to life, um, which was a good comparison. I think uh, if you were trying to, you know, make a metaphor there about how he's going to make his comeback. And then the one thing I think is big here is, is the company relying on a technological breakthrough and is it an unproven disruption? So if it's yes, then that's riskier and a chance for fraud. Nikola, I guess, is an easy one that we remember all now. The last two, and I'll, let you, I'll, I'll go around the table here. Is the information being given to me supposed to distract from something else? And I, a big thing I look for is, is this quarter, did they hype up some sort of metrics that were way different than the previous year? And if it was, why have they stopped looking at those ones that they were hyping up one to two years ago? And then uh, the last one is, does management have a track record of dodging or hiding negative information that is only in SEC filings, but never talking about it anywhere else, or have asked about it on a conference call or something like that? They kind of say, well, you have to look at our disclosures, stuff like that. And I know there's plenty others. So I guess we'll start with Brad. What are some things that you try to look at Oh, Randy, have something first. I'm going to pose a second question after yours, which is, have you ever accidentally or intentionally, have you ever invested in something that turned out to be a fraud? Okay. Well, yeah, we'll look at, we'll, we'll ask that next. Uh, but Brad, what are some things that you look at maybe to say like, okay, is this a fraud? Uh, are they, you know, manipulating the numbers or are we getting on the right track? Sure. Well, well, first of all, just just rigorously studying whatever information is out there on the the track records of, of morality and candid candidness from the actual management team. Um, a lot of these people have decades of experience, and if you can dig deeply enough, I think like OnTrack was was the last one I, I remember where it looked amazing, and then um, there were some red flags on management, and, and just um, whenever that that is the case, uh, I mean, no matter how mouth watering the, op the the opportunity or the prospects. Um, seem to be. It's just it's just a no touch for me. But but um, I, I mean, occasionally I get I get tricked, um, and I think we all we all make mistakes. So for me, the way I invest young, high growth, speculative disruptors, it's all about allocation um, and not letting myself get hurt too badly. If um, I'm too optimistic, which, which I, I do lean um, slightly optimistic, so that's really important. Um, and then and then Brett, Brett was uh, what, what was that bullet point on? So, so technological breakthrough, unproven disruptor, just a, a perfect example of that is Nanox, which I have a, a very small position in. And it's, 
I, I call it frequently my most speculative position, the highest chance of going to zero. And just tying that into position sizing is so important. Um, and that's why the, the fixed finite losses that stock markets in, inherently provide in the infinite potential upside is, is so compelling and why I I, I really um, am okay with this because I can be wrong a lot and still not be hurt. So um, try try to find any red flags of fraud. But if you if you don't find any and and um, and and you dive into to a company enthusiastically, just just uh, don't go all in. I, I don't think that's ever a good idea. Have you fallen victim to any? I think some people would say Nanox is a fraud at this point. Um, I still. <laughs> I still have, I still have a small position, and I still don't think it's a fraud. But I think that outcome is more likely than it maybe. Maybe I thought it was um, like a half a year ago, uh, but still, still holding out hope. The only other one is is um, Aurora Cannabis, and that really it wasn't a fraud. It was just me being really new to the investment world and not not knowing what to look for, and and just trusting a really charismatic culty leader. Um, so, so I guess I guess that's the other uh, key takeaway is every single CEO has an incentive to talk up their book and to make their company sound as amazing as possible. So, um, I, I do generally trust them, but just, um, but yeah, just position size is the key because because we can be wrong, I can be wrong, and I will be wrong again. Yeah, and I guess I'll say mine uh, because we oh, I already hit my notes here is the IGE. If you, if you know that company, the Netflix of China, back in like three, four years ago, uh, this is when uh, I was a total rookie. Uh, I said, you know, like I just saw like, all right, Netflix of China. It was at some, I don't know, sales multiple I thought made sense. And I was like, all right, I'm in. Like I'm going to invest. And it has been a train wreck ever since. I mean, I've been out for like three years now, but uh, I think it was definitely a fraud. They were hyping up their viewer numbers. They're doing some partnership thing that didn't make sense. There's some people that wrote some really good short reports that I've looked at recently. Uh, you know, that one was totally a fraud. And I guess we'll talk more about China later. We don't have to hammer on that point. But Ian, do you have any kind of notes you have on what you look for for identifying any potential fraud? Yeah, I think what you guys have mentioned has been, um, uh, has covered a lot of what uh, to look for in a fraud. But one other point that I'd like to cover that's actually kept me out of um, at least one fraud was the when management starts talking about the big quarter, right? They kind of push all their chips to the table. They say, hey, you know, it's going to be this this quarter that's happening. And it's like, you know, at the end of this year, or sometimes they talk about, oh, next year is when when all the, the revenue growth is going to come. Yeah, don't look at our numbers now, but but in quarter four, we're just going to have this blowout quarter and you just got to believe it. And um, that was actually something that kept me out of on track which um, Brad was mentioning earlier, I was kind of looking at the company and somewhat intrigued, but didn't really like some of the operational history as you were talking about earlier. And um, I looked at, they just kept saying, oh, our Q4 is going to be huge. Our Q4 is going to be huge. And um, I just was, that made me a little uncomfortable on top of some of the other concerns. So um, that's one that I stayed out of. I think in my current portfolio, I also am a, a Nanox holder. Um, that's one that I think has a very binary outcome and I'm kind of willing to ride with that. I don't think that that's a fraud at this point, but you know, I guess yet to be determined. Um, and then uh, we've got, I've got a couple other kind of micro caps or small caps that, you know, it just, it's always, there's a fine line between a fraud and a, um, and a struggling company. So um, I don't want to label any of the other companies I have as frauds, but um, there's definitely some that have been not performing as well as they could have. 
Right. Okay. I think that makes total sense. And the fraud aspect, I think it's not like you don't want to avoid fraud a hundred percent. Like you're not, well, you want to, but I think you're going to be exposed to some uh, throughout your years. And if you're investing for decades and you're taking risk on early stage companies, it's kind of a given for you, Ian and Brad, both of you invest in stuff that might be earlier stage riskier. Do you guys like assign probabilities of say like, all right, there's probably like a 50% chance this doesn't work, but if it does work, you kind of calculate the upside. How, how do you go about that? You know, from considering the downside and the upside of something like that, Brad, do you want to go first? Sure. Uh, I think it's probably a very case by case basis, but I'm, I'm looking for that, that cliche um, company that can, that can return multiples, what it, its price currently is. I won't say 10 bagger, but, but several times. So, I mean, even, even for a company like Nanox, where th- that probability might be a little bit higher, um, I'm not going to put a number on it because I'll, it's probably a little bit biased if I do that. Uh, but it, it really, if I see what I, if I see the, the margin expansion and the growth and the, and the runway and everything that I like, um, I don't really, I don't really care about the probability of it going to zero because again, if, if it doesn't, and if, if I'm right and I, and I, I see, I see what's actually there, then the reward just makes up for, for so many times when I can be wrong, then it doesn't, it, it doesn't matter in the, in the very long run. But I mean, but I mean, yeah, definitely always, always a probability attached when you're investing in anything and probably, or definitely higher when, when you're investing in, in the lemonades and the nanoxes of the world, like, like I, I dip my toes into. Right. Ian. Yeah. For me, nanox was a little bit of a special case where I did, did have that type of calculation. I looked at it and I said, Hey, I think this is successful. And then they hit the, these numbers that they're talking about. Then this is going to be worth, you know, I, I think I kind of calculated it out in somewhere between six and 10 times um, more than it was today. And, you know, the risk for that was that it wasn't going to pass through these FDA clearances and it wasn't going to um, ever be whether, you know, on top of that, it might not be able to distribute, even if it did pass the FDA approval. So um, a lot of risk. And I looked at it and basically said, Hey, I think this is a a binary. It's either going to pass and it's going to be successful or it's not going to pass and not be successful. Um, and I got pretty comfortable with, um, as Brad was talking about earlier, with position sizing and saying, hey, I'm willing to put this much of my portfolio in. And if it goes to zero, I'm okay with that. And if it, um, because I because I want a little piece of this upside. So for me, that's typically, sometimes I don't do as much calculation as I did with Manox, but um, for a lot of these ones that are a little bit riskier, a little bit more speculative, I do um, start my position thinking about, is this, am I comfortable losing all of this money? Um, in most cases, I don't think these companies are going to go to zero, but that's always for me, that's always a good gut check that am I comfortable if this goes to zero? And um, I probably have a higher tolerance for that than most people, but um, it's still, even, <laughs> even I don't like to, to lose a lot of money. Um, <laughs> so, uh, the, that's, that's something for me that I, that I, that's the way I kind of deal with that. It's just the gut check of, am I comfortable losing, losing all of this? It's, right. it's interesting because even you look at like the best companies today and I'll bet every one of them at some point in their lifetime had something shady something that they weren't super forthright about. Let's say something a short can look at and say, that's not up and up. I mean, take it's funny now when you look back on it, all right, Tesla's like the primary example, but you look at say Google, they had, they labeled their first building, building 46. It's like in the, in the time, would you have thought that was like manipulative? 
Yeah, maybe. that's a small one, but I mean, it's like a little fat. It's a factor, and those kind of add up, you know. Yeah, for me, something I like to look at, and I'll I'll kind of keep mine quick, is like management's uh, focus on stock price. I think those that I align with don't really care that much about the stock price if they're constantly commenting on it. It's a bit of a red flag for me. Um, the other thing is. Um, a focus on short sellers. It's okay if you're like, yeah, we we saw it, we think it's wrong, or even disregard it. Um, I know shareholders always want to hear like from management after something like that, but to focus on it, it, it just always ends up striking me as a red flag. But and uh, I can proudly say that I don't think I've fallen victim victim to any frauds. Not yet, not yet. I was close There's- on Luckin, uh, and not to champion my intuition, but. Something told me no. So <laughs> we, uh, yeah, we actually were. Uh, I think what two, what was it? What? No, it's almost two years ago now. That I was mean, something we were looking at. Like this looks good. Numbers four hundred percent. Wow, like that's fast growth. The numbers but, outright looked good. Yeah, but there's a reason. <laughs> All right, uh, do we want to let Ian hit his story for the week? Okay. Yep. My uh, story for the week is Robert Kiyosaki's tweet from a couple weeks ago. Um, he tweeted got it right here. He tweeted, uh, well, he tweeted a few things, but the big one was giant stock market crash coming October. Why? Treasury and Fed short of T-bills, gold, silver, Bitcoin may crash too. Cash best for picking up bargains after crash. Not selling gold, silver, Bitcoin, yet have lots of cash for life after stock market crash. Stock's dangerous. Careful. So that kind of made the rounds on Twitter. People we're poking fun at it and, and bringing up a couple of things. First, I want to just say something about if you're not familiar with Robert Kiyosaki, he is most known for writing Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which I think um, is a book that does have some value for people and, and kind of learning about trying to add value to your life, trying to um, buy things that are going to lead to economic prosperity rather than things that are a drain on your resources. Um, I think there's some good stuff there. My family and I, um, bought his game, which is called cash flow. And it's a really fun game actually. So, um, there's, there's some, uh, you know, there's some legitimacy there, at least in some of the, some of his works, but, but um, since then, and he's become or kind of the, uh, the boy who cried wolf, he he's often, um, out there making grand claims about the stock market about to crash. He's made comments that like the only way to make money in stocks is through insider trading, basically. Um, lots of kind of out there type things um, over the past couple of years. And there's a great graphic on Twitter um, that shows like some of his tweets predicting crashes over the last few years. And oftentimes he's made these bold predictions only to see an up to the right chart. So um, not saying that he's necessarily wrong about the biggest crash in world history coming, but um, he doesn't have a great track record. And so kind of the topic I wanted to touch on today is just market prognosticators and macroeconomic indicators. So it seems like pop culture is really obsessed with bubbles and market crashes. Um, we hear about um, Michael Burry and the big short, and we see all these clickbait articles about, you know, the markets, the markets diving and you need to get out of stocks and you need to buy gold. And we hear advertisements and all sorts of stuff every single day, it seems like about, bubbles and everyone's trying to predict the next bubble and what was the last bubble and what can we learn from it and where are we going now and it just is very obsessed with like i said these bubbles and these market crashes and we also see that in some of the 
uh, financial media, especially with CNBC. And um, just constantly, it seems like any day that the market's down like 2%, we see like panic alarms on CNBC and market crashing, markets in turmoil. Um, the whole world is falling apart, basically. And it's it's generally over like a 2% drop or a 3% drop or things of that nature. So um, there's a lot of there's a lot of pressure, I think, in society about looking out for the bubbles, looking out for the crashes and understandably so, right? We do, people don't like losing money. And so um, it's kind of easy to, easy to prey on that. Despite that, I kind of think, um, I wanted to kind of get your guys' thoughts on um, whether you listen to any sorts of market prognosticators or if you care about macroeconomic factors at all. And some, just to kind of bring up a few macroeconomic events that, I think do have some some bearing on the stock market. Um, GDP numbers about how fast our company or our country is growing. Um, Federal Reserve announcements about um, the lower end of the yield curve. Um, unemployment numbers about how much of the U.S. specifically is um, unemployed or looking for work. And then I think there's also a lot of industry specific numbers that can sometimes be valuable to to investors. So, for instance, like housing starts. Right. There's a lot of these kind of macroeconomic. Um, factors and indicators that, that seem like they might have some value, but what do you guys think? Do you, do you consider macroeconomic factors at all when you're investing? And do you listen to any market prognosticators in general? Brad, do you want to go first? Sure. I, so I'm, I'm pretty, maybe unique. I, I don't really know. I, I'm extremely micro-based and, and stock by stock and laser focused on um, finding that company that can compound at 25 or 30% profitably for the next several years. And in my my opinion, my philosophy is if I've found those companies, then and 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 being patient enough to hold through various political environments and, and rate rising or rate lowering environments, um, if to me and the research that I've done, revenue growth and profit growth at, at the end of the day is going to is going to drive the vast majority of, of stock market alpha um, over the long term. So just kind of using I, I use these macroeconomic events. Um, Kind of uh, to, to to be counterintuitive, I guess, or or not counterintuitive, but greedy when fearful, or fearful when greedy, I guess, kind of like Buffett talks about. Um, and and the and the other quote that kind of comes to mind is, is Peter Lynch's. Um, it's something like, "Way more money has been lost waiting for the next correction than has been lost in in corrections themselves." So so I I am of, of that opinion that the, the macro noise just provides opportunities and just sweeps up unhealthy and healthy companies together indiscriminator indiscriminatorily some, something like that um which which to me if i'm if i'm keeping up with the companies and, and i and i and i'm understanding um the fundamental performance that they're putting forth I, I kind of tune that out and use these these pullbacks or macro noise as buying opportunities and 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 i guess i should mention i'm saying i'm staying in and tuning out the noise but i do usually keep a 10 to 20% cash position just because my holdings are so volatile and just because peace of mind and, and sleeping well is important to me. Um, and, and because I have this cash, I, I find like the macro turbulence and the macro noise that, 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 that inflicts stock market pain is exciting. Um, instead of, instead of terrifying, um, uh, because I, I have this cash position. So I, I just generally, um, just, just for F FYI, for whoever's interested, I, I don't trim or add a lot, but I, I, or in large portions, but I do trim or add somewhat frequently. So just taking off really small pieces of positions when things are getting really fun and, and adding really slowly and consistently as things are getting bad. Um, so just, and the cash position fluctuates between 10 and 20%. So just, I'm kind of going off on a rampage there, but that that's kind of, I, I, I treat macroeconomic fear as opportunity. 
um, more so than portfolio construction and using that um, as, as evidence on how to go about investing. No, that was great. Ryan, did you want to first one? Um, I, I don't really consider, it doesn't all, like macroeconomic factors don't alter the way I structure my portfolio, but uh, I'd be lying if I don't like, uh, if I said, I don't like listening to them. Like uh, it's fun. And I mean, some like Kiyosaki, or Kiyosaki, no, no, I don't really listen to, but I'll, when Burry was doing it, like earlier on Twitter, I, I found it so exciting. And part of me was like, you know, I hope he's right. Granted, we're all beneficiaries of longer t- time horizons as opposed to a lot of other people. So even if it wasn't noise and it was news and a lot of the macro stuff um, say there was sort of a recession, it, it, it's still to our benefit. So because we can kind of collect uh, pieces of companies at cheaper prices. So no, I don't care about it. I imagine as I age, I'll pretend or start to care more and then <laughs> think I have some edge in it. I think that's the life. I think that's the lifeline of most <laughs> portfolios, especially yeah. PMs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, there's definitely a life, life, uh, cycle. Uh, hopefully we, we're going to break it, but, uh, uh, you know, that's the trend everyone goes. I think for me, I don't look at it in general, but for a specific stock, it, it kind of, sometimes you have the question, like, are there any macroeconomic things or events or interest rates, whatever that could really affect this company's either stock price or ability to generate cash? And that's mainly on a case by case basis. And if so, typically, if there's something that some sort of macroeconomic factor, uh, for example, we just covered a company, Lennar Group, which is a home builder, and they have, you know, a lot of, I don't know, there's supply chains, there's the demographics in the US, there's moving. A lot of things are affecting the company that is out of their control. And when it's a macroeconomic factor, that can actually, for me, be a uh, downside or a negative, excuse me, to a potential investment because if they can't control it as a management team, it's just a lot of uncertainty and things could go wrong, even though everyone's acting uh, like uh, with a lot of skill, I guess, you know, it, with their management. Yeah. Or there's certain business models that are just simply interest rate sensitive. Uh, like I guess banks or whatever. Now that's yeah. one we own. Brad, what do, I, what do you have? I guess a stipulation that I, I should add, and, and I agree, Ryan, macro will probably become more important as I as I grow up, but or as, as I age, not as I as I as I grow up and become a big kid. Um, but as I'm kind of investing or entering new countries, like the the one that comes to mind is Ozon. Um, part of my thesis was okay, everyone's using the internet, or, or ever, yeah, everyone's using the internet. Everyone has a smartphone, and no one's using e-commerce. So really low hanging fruit. So I guess that's kind of macro thinking and, and kind of as macro as I go. So just when I'm when I'm investing in, in a in a country or, or or something that I don't I don't know a ton about, um looking at kind of consumer trends and preferences, I guess is sort of macro and that that is on my radar. All right, Ian, you have something? Yeah, I was just gonna throw in that I totally agree with kind of that's my process too with what you guys have been describing that trying to find the secular trends in the macro economy and um and see how it affects the businesses that I'm looking at. I don't want to, I don't really structure my portfolio based on just macroeconomic trends in general, but I do try to um, kind of align it. Like if my, (laughs) if my thesis is dependent on some sort of macroeconomic trend, I want to be fairly um, convinced that that trend is going to continue. And, um, you know, like Brad was saying, I often try and invest with companies that are going to do well in any sort of environment. Um, but it's, it's, uh, you know, it, it is something that's becoming a little bit of a factor in, in the way I look at 
the market. And sometimes I build some small cash positions when I'm a little bit uncertain about the future. There seems to be some excessive volatility in the market and um, that I might be able to take advantage of. And so typically I've just immediately taken my paychecks and put them straight into stocks. But um, when there's a little bit more uncertainty around, I do I sometimes build some small cash positions. Now that typically is like one to 2% of my portfolio. So still, still fairly minor, but um, that's been one way that I've started dealing with some of the macroeconomic uncertainty a little bit. Yeah. Another one, like another kind of scenario that we try to go through is let's say something bad macroeconomically were to happen, uh, say like hype, hyperinflation or whatever, five, five percent inflation yeah. or, uh, like the shipping crisis were to persist or something like that, how would that affect my company? And if, uh, you know, you kind of hope that, or you look for companies that are durable through that. So digital companies with pricing power tends to be like, I don't think the shipping issues are going to hurt Netflix or Spotify. Uh, We don't own Netflix, but those kind of business models. Yeah. Uh, uh, I have one, I guess one more thing to add is that I like to do a tiny bit of like scenario planning where say you have a stock and you're worried a bit about the valuation. Um, it's at like 40 times cash flow or something like that. That typically means you're investing because it's in the growth factor and or not because it's in the growth factor, but it's probably classified within the growth factor. And if you think, and I think it's probably true that if interest rates rise, I have no idea when that would happen, but if interest rates rise or something like that, there's a correction, blah, 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 then that factor would get hit pretty tough, pretty hard. And that stock uh, or company would probably, you know, have a really sharp, sharp drop in share price. And if you think that is going to happen, if those things happen, then I, I kind of think position sizing and being ready to add to that. I know Brad kind of has that, uh, was describing that kind of in a, just a different way of, all right, this company might be slightly overvalued now. If interest rates go up, something could really crater the share price by like 50, 60% within a year. Um, but if that does happen and I'm still really bullish on this company, that could be the time to back up the truck. Um, that's just kind of, that's something I really do think is probably top of mind when doing portfolio management. Yeah. I don't ever see a world where my portfolio is structured around a macro thesis. Um, I, I mean, maybe over my, maybe when I get older, I'll, I'll get no, to that's where, that's where, that's where managers go to die. Right. <laughs> Brad. Yeah. Yeah, I guess just my I, I invest in the cannabis industry and and like that the twenty percent Kager through twenty thirty that's projected it is also I, I guess a large part of my thesis. So I'm just trying to um, kind of I guess I'm agreeing with you guys just tying in the, those macro um, secular growth trends um, to the actual individual performance of, of and ability to perform perform of management and historical performance and all that wonderful stuff um, is probably the best way to go about it. Okay. We're going to hit a quick ad break. And then afterwards, uh, Brad's got some app store stuff. And then I'll be talking China, uh, my expert opinion. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Here you are miles from home and ready to start your vacation. Good thing you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. They have free high-speed Wi-Fi to stream all your favorite movies. And in the morning, get fresh waffles with their free bright side breakfast or squeeze in a workout at their fitness center. Either way, you're ready to conquer the day. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you triumph. Book your stay at LQ.com. 
Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? <sighs> all blocked, thanks to advanced security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. All right, welcome back in. Uh, I'm going to let Brad go first here. And you're talking App Store take rates, which I think we all have a bit of an opinion on. Um, so Everyone does, yeah. 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 Everyone seems to have some hot take on it. So Brad, uh, what do you have? Yeah, sure thing. Um, and I should start um, by saying, because my opinion on their 30% take rate maybe is not as, as positive as some of the others. Um, but I, I think it is crystal clear and, and objective at this point that the Apple App Store has uplifted countless developers um, all, all of their careers. Uh, but 30% but take rate at the same time seems um, a little predatory. So, so just going into the, the timeline and some of the pressures um, on that take rate in recent in recent weeks. So, the first kind of piece of news that circulated about this was Apple kind of preemptively taking the stance that we're going to allow people to plug into external third-party payment options, which is um, Apple at, or, or Apple forcing the the internal usage of, of payment options is, is where this thirty percent take rate came from. So theoretically, that take rate would have come down a lot if, if people can um, link to external payment options. But they made this um, this qualification that you have to be a reader app. And they said um, reader apps are kind of media apps. So Spotify is, is an example of one that, that they lumped in. And I think Netflix was even named explicitly as a beneficiary. Uh, but just thinking about um, some of the stuff that I own, like Revolve, they have um, they, they have an app. They're they're not a reader app. They're I mean, they, they, they sell things. But but. Um, and, and, and it was more, more generally speaking, the, the, the companies that, that have um, in-app purchases as a large part of their businesses would be excluded from this. So Epic Games and, and Fortnite and, and all these, these video games. Um, and Epic Games was really the, the company that, that, that kind of um, pushed this forward, I guess. So after, after um, this Apple kind of announcement, which was kind of seen by me at least as a way to kind of... Um, as a way to kind of appease uh, regulators without having to actually give up anything important because these in-app purchases are such a large part, I think like 70% of their app store revenue. Um, but then a federal judge more recently kind of broadened this um, forcing of, of linking to external payment options to all apps, not, not just reader apps. Um, so theoretically, every company with a consumer facing app um, that sells in, in the public market stands to benefit. And, and I mean, just personally, the option or, or the, the thing that comes to mind for me, we did a show on Duolingo um, and, and, and it's a small position for me, but I mean, they have like a 72, 73% gross margin. And in their S1, it just says the vast majority of our, of our input costs are being paid to Apple and Google and their app stores. So so companies like this, I mean, Match Group and for you guys, Spotify, and I mean, the, the, the op or the examples are endless. I mean, the, the gross profit margin tailwinds um, from this, the implications of this could be massively positive for so many companies. And, and I think, I, I, I don't really know what to expect, but I think it's more likely that there's pressure on this take rate than it has been in the past. Um, we also have Microsoft announcing last week that they're going to allow third-party app stores from Epic and, and Amazon initially and others next to integrate with its own app store without any take rate. Um, Facebook is pouring money into what they're calling the next iPhone. So clearly, um, hoping, ho hoping to have that, that hardware 
um, center that, that they kind of build applications around on their own without Apple. Um, these are trillion dollar companies, multi-trillion dollar in the case of Microsoft. So you have this regulatory pressure and, and competition from um, just the biggest, deepest pockets, po deepest pocketed companies in the world. And Apple certainly might, might actually be the deepest pocketed company in the world. Um, but, but I, I think that there's real kind of real momentum to erode this take rate. And again, the implications for so many companies in my portfolio, and I know other people, people's portfolios, um, could be massive. So the, the, the question I want to ask, um, is, is kind of, so, so we get, or the first question I want to ask, I have a couple is for the last five, five, six, however many years you want to say, we've had these, these cycles of hearings on the Senate and the House of Representatives, and we see Google's executives and, and Facebook's and Amazon's and, and senators say really mean things to them and they get really fired up and passionate and then absolutely nothing happens. So do, do we think that I, and please tell me, please, please tell me if I'm interpreting this wrong, if if kind of this federal judge ruling maybe isn't as important as I think it is. And, and if kind of this is all bark and no bite and Apple is just going to continue to have this amazingly profitable and, 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 and amazing, yeah, amazing app store business. Um, well, so. I'll, I'll comment there. There is difference between the regulatory hearings and pure litigation between two companies. The regulatory hearings seem like absolute nonsense after the question we heard last week of, whether or not Facebook will get rid of Finsta. Um, I don't know if you saw that video, but it was pretty hilarious. Yeah, well, um, let's get the age cap in there, right? <laughs> yeah. It sounds like most of uh, Apple problems are actually like pure litigation. So in Epic's case, and then also Spotify has sued them in the EU. I think there's been, multi uh, there was a rule. Spotify with Match Group too, suing them all over. Yeah, there's a big, it's all, I think it's almost class action. I'll let, uh, I'll let Ian go first because he's probably gonna have a different take than Brett and I. Yeah, maybe. So <laughs> for full transparency, my largest uh, single holding is Apple actually. And um, so I am a little bit biased in that, that sense, but I will say, I think um, I don't like to see government action in these types of things to, to take down what a government or what a private entity has set it as its price. Um, even in a situation like this, I think people would, claim that it's a monopoly. I don't think it really is a monopoly. I think it's actually one of the things that is closer to a monopoly than most things in our society. But I think some of the factors that Brad was highlighting um, show us that, that if this is an unfair price, it is getting brought down and whether um, through uh, competition, right. And other, other firms just bringing the price down because they're, they're lowering their own prices or whether it's through um, innovation, um, I think that that Apple, <laughs> I think that 30% may be a little bit unfair in a sense, but I think that Apple is going to have to make um, moves if it wants to maintain its customer base to, to reduce that um, percentage a little bit or um, kind of change the, the types of services as we saw them do, the types of services that they charge that 30% on. So, or provide alternatives for people to pay in other ways or, or things of that nature. So, my opinion on it is I think, I think the 30% take rate does have to come down. Um, but I think that that's Apple's decision. And I think that it would be a bad business decision by them to maintain this 30% rate um, across the board for everything. I think that if they, if they brought that down a little bit, it would probably um, be good and better for their business. And I don't think um, that, that getting the government involved in this situation is really a precedent that, um, 
I'd like to see set. Yeah, I guess uh, a lot of our holdings would get impacted positively by it. So it's something I've been thinking about a lot, but I do think just personally, yeah, I agree with Ian. The, the, it doesn't seem necessary for the government to step in here on something like this. It's not like a, I don't know. It doesn't really seem like that big of a deal. This business is just really well, how done really well. However, I think you just realistically, it'll probably come down either through, you know, regulations probably not going to happen or take forever. Like uh, Brad and Ryan were mentioning, but the legis, uh, not legislation, litigation seems like there is a lot of uh, bite there and it's already in, uh, you know, in progress, match group is sidestepping the app store in certain countries uh, with a virtual currency. I don't know exactly how it works. I assume you have to go out to like a web browser and something like that, but they're sidestepping it somewhat. I think that's going to happen a lot more. And I do think that's the Apple's best move or the move they're going to be almost forced to make is to, to bring down the take rate to like 10% or 15%. Um, and I think from an investment perspective, I kind of think about it that it's not going up and there's a high chance it's going to go down. So uh, it's got a benefit company. You know, I think it's a high likelihood that these app store companies like Match Group, the video game companies, Duolingo, uh, Spotify and Netflix have already evaded the payments where since they're only signing up for subscriptions, they kind of actually still just evade it and send people out. Um, that'll go away. But then I think the true regulatory threat is the one that impacts uh, Apple where they have their services that compete with Netflix and Spotify and others uh, while they own this app store. And I do think there is merit that with the you know quasi probably close to a monopoly, if not a monopoly in certain areas that they cannot, or it's unfair to uh, serve Apple Music in the way they have done where you know it's pre-downloaded, all that stuff, where it gives them an unfair advantage to Spotify who has to go through their app store. And while Sp- you know Spotify and uh, all the other companies have claimed that Apple, when they compete with them, is incredibly adds a lot of friction when trying to get updates, you know, to their apps and it's really unnecessary. So they're kind of, and I think they're making solid claims that Apple is holding them back from the, uh, the competition. That that's, that's a little different than the take rate part, but I think there's regulation merit from there, but the take rate, I kind of think it'll probably come down, but in, in some form or another, I don't know if maybe it will just out of pure social pressure, but the idea that it's going to get like innovated away if they don't seems well, overly idealistic because the moat's there. The moat's there. Yeah. Sure. Especially in the U S like no one, no one cares if Facebook launches a phone and it would be a waste of Facebook's resources because no one's going to buy it. Um, VR could be, you know, five, 10 years maybe, but yeah, maybe that could be a disruptor, but in the U S if you have three different Apple devices, you're never switching. Um, until there's a completely new technology that makes you have to switch. Um, I, I think they do have a bit of a mono- bit of a monopoly here, and I would not be surprised if they held the take rate as long as they could. The, yeah, yeah, I don't know, Brad, I, or do you have any? I'd say personally, uh, it'd be 15 percentage points of pure margin to match group. So yeah, I'd love for the take rate to disappear, but yeah. <laughs> it's not realistic. 
Yeah, I disappear no, but but come down. Um, I think is somewhat realistic and, and hopefully I really, I really do hope it'll happen. And I agree with you guys that um, hopefully also it'll be private market forces and competition from uh, these formidable uh, mega caps that, that forces their hand in bringing it down instead of um, Elizabeth Warren or somebody else telling them to. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I, I do think that 30% is kind of a, a unsustainable and, and kind of 15, 20%, that range um, seems a little more likely. I do think it'll stay elevated just because of like what you guys were talking about. I mean, I don't, I don't use non-Apple devices during the day. Um, I mean, we all have iPhones so that our, our, our text bubbles are not green so that our friends don't get mad oh, at us. I mean, Brett is a rare green bubbler, but so I, I so I apologize. Hey, I, I, uh, hey, I don't attach myself, my identity to a mobile operating system. I'm just going to put that out there. That's fair. I guess, I guess I do. So, so, uh, but, but yeah, I, I do think it'll come down not as much as I would hope uh, to see it come down, uh, but hopefully it does. Yeah. Uh, do right. you have any, do you have another question or where to hit the, the investment one? Now that kind of looped in all the questions I had into one. So let's move on to, to Ryan's. Okay. Uh, I'm talking China. So uh, I'll just go ahead and, uh, say this outright that I don't, uh, I'm not an expert in it by any means, but I do want to, a lot of people are just kind of hiding behind like the China crackdown without actually going into it. So I kind of wanted to talk about some of what has actually happened and then I'll kind of, uh, shoot it over to you guys for your takeaways. But the focus of most of the actions have been taken, the focus, the, the focus of most of the actions that Chi- the Chinese government has taken are centered around the idea of common prosperity. And so the idea of common prosperity was first mentioned by Mao Zedong. I might be butchering that last name. No, you got it. Usually go. That, that's how you Mao say it. Zedong. Uh, and so if you see the references of it's like President Xi, the new Mao, that's kind of where they're coming from. Um, there's a lot of articles that have been like, kind of highlighted like that. And so in 1950, he was kind of the one that proposed it. And then it was carried on by another Another tongue twister here, but Deng Xiaoping, I think I'm saying that right. Um, and Deng Xiaoping was actually the first uh, I think leader to propose that maybe letting people get rich would speed up overall economic recovery. And so the idea was sort of short-term capitalism as a means for long-term socialism. Uh, I think I'm basically getting that right without hopefully offending any cultures. Um, but all the policies are primarily focused on redistribution of wealth, especially some of the ones that have gone on recently. And I'll go through some of the actual policies. I saw a lot of these from Rob Vinal's uh, letter to investors, which is w- well worth a read. Um, and it's actually pretty interesting because these are all problems that are often talked about here in the US as well. There just hasn't really been action taken on them. So the first one was to choose one. And so this was a rule that was passed that prohibited online platforms. For, so think like Alibaba uh, from allowing or from forcing suppliers to work exclusively on their platform uh, or not allowing them to work with others. Uh, this, I believe, was the driving force behind the $2.8 billion fine for Alibaba. This is, I mean, I think practices like that get scrutinized here in the US also. Um, the other one, and this one may sound familiar, is there was a kind of a crackdown on the gig economy, which was, this is basically rules that were set forth to make uh, service platforms, um, the gig service platforms. So like the Airbnbs, the Ubers, except obviously invert it to China. Um, 
they uh, they were forced to kind of provide extra employee type benefits to its workers, something that's obviously been proposed, I think, particularly in California. And then the third one, financial stability. This is basically a rule advocating for conservatism from financial companies. So I think it required them to post collateral for uh, have a have a certain percentage of collateral. Well, and, and group. Uh... Ant Group yeah. probably induced this policy because I a lot think of leverage lever- in there. Yeah, a lot, lot of leverage one. in their related parties. Yeah. Um, the other one is uh, after-school tutoring. So if you had any um, education stocks over there, you probably know of this one because it required any and all after-school education companies to uh, be convert to a not-for-profit institution, which. Uh, that's usually not very good for shareholders. And then uh, online, the last one I'll talk about was online gaming. So a state-owned news site referred to video games as spiritual opium. Um, and the the proposal is to limit the amount of time school-aged children can spend gaming. I believe Tencent came out with a figure that uh, only 3.5% of their gamers are under the age of 16. I could be getting that stat wrong, but I thought it was kind of fascinating. So I don't think it's as detrimental as people thought initially. Um, I'd also say that in August, the government began limiting the debt levels that property companies were allowed to have. I think this might've been an action as part of the financial stability proposal. And this is what caused the Evergrande crash that so many people talked about uh, because they had to start liquidating their assets and they were basically levered to the moon. Um, so and it, thought, as we're recording, it's still going on. If there's something that big that gets resolved in like a month and you're listening back, this is way early October. So yeah. it's still possibly ongoing. But I, I thought I'd mention the stock returns from their highs of some of the notable ones. Notable ones. So Alibaba is down 54%. First of all, uh, Charlie Munger in the Daily Journal reported their 13F this week. And he added, thought, thought that was kind of fascinating because he's been- By the dip at 97. There we yeah, go. He's, you know, <laughs> he is behind the dip. And then Tencent is down 41%. Baidu down 56%. Pinduoduo is down 57%. And then I saw another chart that I found really fascinating and it's China's GDP. It's basically, it's references China's GDP versus the total return index for China. Um, and so China's GDP since 1995, take it with a grain of salt because it could come from a low base and it might be misreported numbers, uh, is up almost 3000%. But during that same time, the MSCI China China Total Return Index is up less than 100%. Uh, And I think that's kind of the indicator. That for me is really telling chart. I think anyone that looks at that is kind of gets the idea or the common prosperity notion that China's trying to implement. So my question is to you guys, um, is China China investable for you? Do you guys think buying companies in there is... uh, worth the risk. And then is this crackdown, I guess, cause for concern for any domestic companies you have that operate in China? I'll let Brad go first. So uh, first question, no, uh, I, I do not and, and am not willing to invest uh, in China just, just because, I mean, when, when you have a government who just can do whatever the heck they want with the snap of their fingers and who has these seemingly um, objectives to kind of uh, create a more uh, socialist society in, in the future. Um, I, I can't. I can't get behind a, any kind of company. I mean, that that is where macro um, become uh, becomes a big part of my my thought process and kind of precludes me from from entering in. And and I even own. I mean, I own Ozon, which is in Russia. Um, but it's just and, and a lot of people are not willing to take that geopolitical risk. But just it seems that much more intense um, to to me in China. Not not to mention just just. Um, 
just like the 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 work camps that that we've seen in the news for Uyghur Muslims and, and some of these human rights abuses, uh, I, yeah, it's just it's way too hard to 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 get excited about investing in anything. Andy, you want to go? Yep. So Brad took a lot of kind of what I was going to say there, and I think said it really well. So I won't I won't <laughs> just reiterate that. But um, for me, China is not investable just because of. Um, as Brad was mentioning, a lot of the, the geopolitical risk and the fact that things can just change on a dime in one in one um, one second based on a government's decision. Um, there's also I'll bring up kind of some of the fraud risk. There's just less regulation over there um, with the companies, and so we've we've seen some examples of fraud. And then the last thing I'll mention on on whether it's investable is they seem and it's you you brought this out well, Ryan, but they seem to just not care about corporations and businesses and don't believe that businesses are essential to the success of the company and, or sorry, to the success of the country. And so that's a pretty different view than um, most people in the United States have that, that there's a um, sense that businesses are good for us and that businesses create prosperity and things like that. And there seems to be a, a thought within the Chinese government that businesses are not essential to their future growth. Um, all of that combined just makes China uninvestable for me. Um, and I, I pretty much don't even, I don't look at anything in China anymore. A couple of years ago, I would look at things, but never actually invested. At this point, I'm, I'm not even looking at things in China. As far as, I think the second question you asked is, is pretty interesting too, which is um, whether this is a cause for concern for domestic companies with operations in China. <laughs> so I was looking at these in the last couple of months. I was looking at um, kind of this idea in the last couple of months. And for me, I do have some holdings that are um, that are have a lot of um, pull in China that are that are dependent on China to some extent between uh, Apple, even Costco is getting more into China. So it's something I'm a little bit um, concerned with. But I, I think that there's enough uh, there's enough sway with from America that, and, and much enough kind of mutually assured destruction that China won't totally crack down on American companies um, in the near future. But I, it's something I'm keeping an eye on and something that I'm definitely a little bit um, concerned about and, and, and something that's, like I said, kind of percolating in the back of my mind. All right. Yeah, I'll hit, I'll hit mine. Uh, China is not investable for me. There's been a lot of hit, you know recent history of fraud that we've all been over. I think I have the same views as all of you guys. Uh, but you know, I look at stuff over there and like JD.com looks so cheap, but I know it's cheap for a reason. Um, I did used to invest in Chinese companies. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, there was that one that I think was probably a fraud. IGE is still trading. So uh, maybe avoid that one. But for the domestic companies, I think it's more of just a risk you have to incorporate and you really got to look. They have to put it in their uh, either their 10. Maybe it's just the 10K. I think it may be in the 10Q as well. They have to put their geographic distribution. So there's some companies like Apple or Nike or something like that, or Starbucks, they may have 20% exposure to China and that's pretty important. But if there's a company, I know there's some video game companies that Ryan and I were looking at that probably had 5% exposure. And then if this stock is selling off 10% on news that China's cracking down on video games, that might be more noise than actual news. So I think you have to really look at the geographic distribution and you also have to look at their future growth plans. So I know Starbucks, their big growth driver was supposed to be China and has been, right? But if that's yeah. where all their future growth is going to come from, you have to maybe reevaluate that and make your own decision. But I think on a case-by-case -case basis, the domestic companies uh, are 
I don't know. There's not going to, it seems very, very unlikely because it would almost be, it'd be a very malicious act to like cut off Apple or whatever, you know, everything's all connected. It seems like nothing's just going to be cut off, but there could be something slowly that impacts that or the economy in China might not do so well, or the redistribution of wealth or whatever these new rules are or any other new rules they make up could impact those companies' growth plans. Uh, Sometimes China likes to, or it seems like they like to lean on domestic producers or not producers, domestic companies, which is why Amazon got crushed in China, or that's a big reason why. And it's probably because Alibaba, Pinduoduo, J.com and the others were just better. But you know, if you're banking, if you were banking on Amazon, you know, doing well in China, you didn't really have to in the long run, but you know, that might've been a bit far-fetched. Um, but in general, China investable, I'd say, uh, not worth the risk. There's so many countries. I mean, e- even in the U S there's thousands of companies, especially if you're looking at microcaps as well. And then internationally, there's so many other markets out there that, uh, why bother? There's there's a lot out there. there you know, you're not going to get bored just because you get you don't have China. Yeah, I think I agree with all that, Brad. Yeah, just I forgot to answer the second part of your question. I just want to say for my portfolio specifically, Duolingo is the company that that comes to mind for um, being impacted by these decisions, just because it is an educational app. It did have an office in Beijing, um, or does I think have an office in Beijing. Um, I've heard nothing from the company. I, I reached out to the IR department about it, but I, but it's it's a small chunk of revenue, so. I was honestly crossing my fingers that it, w- it would pick up a little bit more steam and attention um, kind of um, for the reason that, that Brett was talking about, because it's not that that integral part of their business, but it, it is a small chunk. So, so it's definitely something something to keep in mind. Um, the only other one is Boeing um, and, and they the People's Republic of China has been trying to figure out how to build commercial airplanes for a long time and, and they have not figured it, it out yet. Uh, so. Um, I, I don't really see them sidestepping ordering planes from Boeing in, in the short to medium to long term. Yeah. And I got to hear people, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are probably investing in Alibaba right now. And if, you know, the crackdown doesn't go through as bad as we think, uh, the stock looks pretty cheap. And if they're doing as well as, you know, as reported, it seems like it would be a great investment. You know, there's a lot of people that are smarter than us investing in it. But I think what sums it up for me was, uh, I believe it was, well, I think he keeps his name private now, but Willis Cap on Twitter said, look, guys, I made it, uh, I, I made a sheet of all the cash distributions I'm going to get from this, from um, Alibaba and Tencent from now until 2050. And then it was a table of just all zeros. And I think that's the really big fear here is that you don't really have a claim on the future cash flows. It's just kind of like an third party thing with through the VIE structure sometimes. And are you actually, do you actually own the shares? Is that risk well enough? Do you even understand the country at all? I know I don't understand anything that's happening in the country. I think we're all in the same boat. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's something we haven't even talked about either, which is there's if the rules are good. The regulatory yeah. risk, but there's also the cultural risk of like habits and like consumer habits just being different. I'm not investing in India, you know? Yeah. I mean, part of, part of me just doesn't understand the actual, like, uh, consumer landscape over there as well. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess it goes in the non-investable category for me. It seems like we're all in unison there. Um, unless we have anything else, I'm going to go ahead and hit the outro. Um, but thank you all for listening. Uh, this We are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, 
general partners. Brett and I are, however, general partners at Arch Capital and clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.